Well, good morning. Nice to be here with you today. Um, I'm really excited, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna pray and try to see if I can uh, rope this in a little bit. Uh, Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for uh, your great love for us, and thank you for this place and our chance to come here before you and worship you through song and prayer and celebrating the the Lord's Supper, your supper, and uh, now through preaching. We got an uh, interesting topic today, and and I wanna I wanna honor you through it. So help uh, help keep me in line, help me keep in line with your truth, help me uh, be less of me and and much 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 more of you, and uh, give me the words to say in order to do that. We ask for uh, peace this morning in your name. Amen. So in my mind, one of the most interesting uh, parts of Scripture is back in the Old Testament when Israel is supposed to be taking the promised land, this idea of going in there and uh, occupying it or, or taking it back over this land that God gave them. And so whether you are a you know, just a fan of God's redemptive uh, plan in history or if you're a history nerd like me, uh, reading these stories, are it can be... Uh, frustrating, it can be beautiful, it can be brutal, uh, but they're always fascinating. These stories, how they go. For those of you who aren't familiar with sort of the backstory, I'm just going to give you a quick 40,000 foot view. Uh, back in the day, Abraham was given a uh, promise from God, and, and if you look at in Genesis 12 and 13 and uh, 15, 17, there's the, what we call the Abrahamic covenant, and God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff, and part of that is land. There's a set-aside land for you that your descendants, your nation, is going to be built up in. So you need to take that. So Abraham uh, accepted that, and, and they're dwelling there. And a couple of generations later, through a famine, they ended up down in Egypt. And at first, everything was okay, but then uh, the descendants of Abraham became a nation of slaves down in Egypt, and they spent 400 years down there. And then Moses got called by God in a burning bush, no less, and he got him riled up and said, hey, you need to go and, and you need to lead your people, my people, out of Egypt and out of here. So Moses takes his buddy Aaron, and then they, they take the Israelites, they get them going, and God delivers them, gets them out of Egypt, and this is known as the Exodus. And then from the Exodus, we have the... Uh, Moses is leading them out, but Israel can't keep their whining in check. They, they're frustrated. They want to go back. They think that back in Egypt was better than what they're going forward. They're having a problem trusting God, trusting Moses, that he's speaking for God. Uh, they're treating their relationship with them almost like a fling, right? They, they would draw near to God and then pull back. Draw near and pull back, even though God is trying to uh, come to him and or come to them and nurture them and, and move them along. They kept kicking them back out. The other night, I was uh, sleeping and Sarah was uh, taking care of Caddy, and he was being particularly fussy, right, Mr. Fussy Pants. And uh, so I get up and I go to to try to help out, right. This is you know I make my cameo appearance and and try to to save the day, right. So I'm up there and I'm trying to soothe him and I have my face up right by his face and I'm giving little kisses and talking to him and then he proceeds to pee on my face. Right, right on my face. Just let, let go and all down my arm and stuff. So I was thinking, I'm like, man, this is, but I laughed, right? It was funny. I wasn't mad. It was, it was cute, gross, but cute. And, uh, but I'm thinking this is kind of like what the Israelites were doing to God. God would draw near and they would essentially pee on God's face, right? They were, they weren't happy. They weren't doing this relationship. By the way, 
uh, Howard tell, uh, where are you, Howard? There we go. He was telling me uh, earlier, now that I'm a father, I'm, I'm going to, in, in so many words, I'm, I'm peeing with the big boys now, is what he said. And and so, but it turns out I'm more being peed on by the little guys. So that's, that's how that's going. But nevertheless, God wasn't happy with the way that they were responding to what he was doing. And so God put Israel essentially in the timeout chair. Right? He, they, we're going to get into the spies in a little bit, but after the report, God says, okay, this is it. I've had enough. It's time to go. And we see this in Psalm. Oh, by the way, I changed the title from clingy to cling, just so it's on the, it's, it's different now. But, uh, Psalm 95, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. This is the generation that came out of Egypt and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. So they, nevertheless, they're still being drawn out of this area that they're in and towards the promised land. God is still staying with them. He didn't abandon them. He didn't leave them. He's just saying that there's a certain amount of them that aren't going to be able to do it. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So they finally get to the destination and they get in successfully. You can think of it like an entrance exam. They've been being prepared up to a certain point and then they hit it and then God says, okay, you've got to take care of these few things and then you're going to be able to get in. They go through and, and what are these things that God was teaching them? In the, in the desert, was he teaching them this like wicked, awesome, full frontal attack force? Well, no. Well, was he teaching him this like super sneaky guerrilla warfare so that they'd be able to just to go in there and, and to take out whoever and, and do that? Or no, it's, that's wrong again. Maybe they're in the desert and God taught them how to make weapons of mass destruction and they would just fireball and just annihilate everybody. Wrong again. They didn't do any of those things. What did they do? They learn to trust God and do what he says. It's, it's almost like anticlimactic. You think they're going to have to go in and, and do this big uh, thing, but it's actually trusting him that was the key to doing that. They, in other words, they at least temporarily realized who they were in God, and they were to cling to him. And we cling, we're going to say cling a lot today, and we think hold fast. Some of your translations will say hold fast or hold firmly to something. And the reason why God was so concerned about this is that he wanted to make sure that going into the context that they were going to be going into, that they would be able to remember him, acknowledge him, pay attention to him. The context that they're going into, and this is a lot like the context we live in, has distractions all around them. There was the Canaanites and, and all these different people groups, and they worshiped these different gods. They sacrificed children. They did all of these things. They built idols. They did, a, for them, a lot of them in the ancient Near East, this was cool stuff that the other people were doing, right? It was stuff that they wanted to do too. But God was saying, no, you're not to do that. You're supposed to pay attention to me. Hold fast to me. Cling to me. That's where your identity is in. I know uh, for some of you this may come as a surprise because I'm sure nobody ever experienced this. But in high school, I went through a bit of identity crisis. I don't know if anybody has ever uh, experienced that themselves. Probably not, right? But uh, for a while, I was uh, this guy that was hiding behind this confident veneer, right? Sports and, and doing all this stuff and, and uh, putting on a show. But in the, in the back of my mind, I was this broken, hurting, self-esteem-less guy, right? I was like this little child that was, that was 
it was di- very, very difficult for me to uh, to navigate that. And on top of that, I felt like I'd been relationally burned. So what I was doing was I was trying to find meaning and purpose in just about anything. I was flailing around trying to, to cling to anything or latch on to anything. I use the word latch, and, and I, I'm sure a lot of you ladies know exactly what comes to mind when you say that word. It's funny, Sarah joked that... Uh, there's, there's certain words that we use or never use until a certain situation comes up. And of course, uh, with breastfeeding, latch all of a sudden becomes one of the most important words in a, in a lady's vocabulary. Uh, and there's this other thing when, when you're having little babies. Sorry, I'm using a lot of little baby stories because it's kind of new. But uh, there's this, this fun thing that babies like and they teach us to do. It's, it's called skin to skin. Turns out it's not just babies that like skin to skin, but you know what I'm saying. But it's uh, the, uh, but the babies particularly they enjoy this skin to skin thing, and it's not just with mom. Dads, we get to do it too. It's pretty rad. So uh, the other day, I'm uh, right after actually Caddy was born. I, I got him on my chest, and I'm laying there and having this awesome dad moment, and he's sleeping and everything's good, and then he starts to wake up, and he's he's doing the, you know, twisting the head, and and he's hungry, right? And I was like. Dude, you're going to be let down, right? This is like this is going to end well for you. But he didn't care, right? He's just, I'm a little baby, and I'm on somebody, and I feel a heartbeat. I'm going to give it a shot. So down he goes, and he latches. And, oh man, did that, like the little cry that came out of his mouth, this little frustrated, are you kidding me, sort of cry that erupted. I was like, I told you, man. Like, there's nothing There's nothing there. So I had to hunt down his mom and, and help him out. But that was like me in high school, right? This is where I was going. What I need something of substance. I need something. So I'm trying to find it anywhere rather than in the one spot that I could find it. It's funny, even after becoming a Christian, things didn't just magically disappear. That idea of trying to find meaning and purpose, and I think we can all understand that or identify with that, it doesn't just go away. There has to be some intentionality. There has to be some desire to keep going forward from this uh, because there's lots of there's cool stuff around us that we want to do, right? There's all of these things that we want to cling to, attach to all these other gods that they, we want to do that, even if we have a commitment, even if we want to do that. Uh, but there is more in store for those who do cling. So this morning, I want to ask you. I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to. I'm going to kind of ease into it. But this is. We want to just remember one thing this morning. Uh, so this is the question: Who or what do I rely on for meaning and purpose in my life? Who or what do I rely on for meaning and purpose in my life? Now, being at Oakville, we're we're in an affluent society. A lot of us will think, judging by what we think about all the time or talk about all the time or do all the time, uh, that might be a career, right? It could be our stock portfolio. It's cash, right? That that kind of runs it. Or for some of us, we, and I don't know if this is an actual term, but it's it's a thing. Maybe it's the it's the cult of sport, right? If anybody's been to Jay's game recently, I haven't. It was it was super fun. But if anybody tries to tell me that's not a religious experience, you're crazy, right? This is uh, we're, we've gone, I think, in the West, maybe out of control sometimes when we think about sports. Uh, so maybe it's that. Maybe it's maybe it's my kid's hockey team. He doesn't play hockey. But uh, maybe it's your kid's hockey team, right? Or maybe it's the Blue Jays. Uh, at the game, I, I saw the cult of Blue Jay, and they painted their faces. It was, uh, it was neat. Uh, others might say family, right? Others might say, well, my family is where I get my meaning and purpose. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with family. There's nothing wrong with 
money. There's nothing wrong with careers. There's nothing wrong with sports. None of these things are wrong, but what about if we build our foundation on them? What happens when something, I'm going to use a a big word here, transient, right? Something that's not going to last, that's not eternal. What if we build our whole lives on something like that? I think we know. So, hopefully, we will say, at least, because we want it to be this way, we're gonna, we want to found this on God. We want to say, it may not work out practically, but this is at least a desire I have. I want my life to be founded. I want my meaning and purpose to be, uh, defined by God. Uh, but we have to ask ourselves, do we actually cling to God, right? Remember that, the definition, the hold fast, hold firm? Do I do that with God? Or is it just like the Israelites, just a fling born out of inconvenience? Is it a fling or do you cling? Fling or cling? Now, this is that's all I want you to remember this morning because this is something we want to roll around in our heads. For 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to always be checking to see if we're in the faith, right? This isn't doubting. This isn't worrying about whether we're saved. This is just saying, hey, where am I at with God right now? Where am I at with God right now? And so, is it a fling, or do we cling? So luckily, we have our book here, our uh, awesome book, and we're going to turn to Joshua. It's the sixth book of the Bible. It's after Deuteronomy, but before, if you hit Judges, you've gone too far. And flip to chapter 22. Flip to 22. I'm going to have, we're going to go verse by verse here in, in good Bible teaching fashion and uh, go from there. So verse one, by the way, Joshua, he's somebody that we, I think, can look to for an example. This is an awesome example of what it looks like to to be a clinger, right? To cling to God with all you are. And that's why uh, we want to be looking at this and, and looking at him. And he's talking right now in verse one. He says, at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, why is this important? This is important because, uh, for those of you who remember your Bible history, when they're going in to take the promised land, right, they were the 12 tribes of Israel. But here we only have two and a half. So it's, it's a little bit weird. It's like, why isn't he addressing all of them? Well, as they are coming up to the Jordan River, they split. And the reason why they split is because on what's called the Transjordan side, right? Trans means other or over. On the Transjordan side, before they went in, so they're coming in from the east, right? And here's the Jordan River, and here's the west. This is the promised land. So they're coming in from this. They call this the Transjordan side because this is the side they want to get to. And they call this the Cisjordan side. I remember it because it's this Jordan side, right? Cisjordan, it's not important, but it's kind of a fun little fun fact you can stow away and, and impress your friends with at cocktail parties. Uh, so they want to get to the Cisjordan side, but on the Transjordan side, two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh say, hey, we got lots of flocks. We have all of these whatever animals that we have, and this land is awesome to be raising them. So we want to stay on this side. Moses and God say, fine, you can you can stay on this side. But you need to go over across to the other side with the rest, with everybody else, and you have to help clear out the land. You don't get out of this. This isn't a get out of clearing the land of for free card. You still got to go. So you can leave the ladies, you can leave the kids and some guys to help protect them, right? Super dangerous in this part of the in part of the world at this point. Leave them behind, but you got to send your best troops over and you have to help take the land. So now he's addressing them and he wants to talk to them about that. So he gets them up. 
And then he says to them, you have, verse 2, said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. So this is this is what I was talking about. This is a surprising sort of part when you're reading the, the Old Testament because uh, if you're like me, when you read it, it's typically bad news, right? Any Anytime a man of God gets up before Israel and is about to talk to them, usually it's like this. Like, what have you been doing? Are you crazy? Are you, you know, this is, it's gone all wrong. But here we have a part where he's like, you know, good job, guys. Like, gold star. You've done exactly what we wanted you to do. So it's it, it's bizarre, right? It'd be, nice, it'd be neat if it ended that way. It's going to go sideways, as it usually does. But it's still, they, they had failed a lot coming up to this point, but now they're doing well. So why? what did they command? What was God and uh, Moses talking about? So verse 3, You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day. But you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. So their job was to take the land. God said, you can stay here, but you have to take the land. And then they did it. It seems it seems simple, right? You, you get a command and then you do it. But it was very, very difficult for these Israelites. And I think in our own lives sometimes to take something that would seem simple and just carry it out because we get distracted. This is why clinging is so important. I forgot I'm not changing this. There we go. So verse 4 starts off, And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Now, what's this rest? We saw that. It was also in in Psalm 95. Rest is, we see it three times that it comes up, typically in throughout the Bible. And if you want to get more into depth with what this is talking about, read Hebrews 4. It fleshes it out a little bit more. But basically for now, the first rest was, on which day of creation? Seventh day of creation. God rested. And so the cool part was, Adam and Eve originally got to experience that rest. It was that closeness of relationship with them as God ceased to work for that, uh, as his part of creation. So that was the original rest. Then we have this rest. This rest particularly is talking about entering into the promised land. This is, in a way, for us, we would look at it as, as metaphorical, in that when we enter God's rest, that's the third one. But for them, it was an actual literal place. They they were out of rest, I'm in rest, right? And once they crossed over the Jordan, they went to and they ended up where God wanted them to be. And that was out of obedience, born out of obedience, and what they're supposed to be doing. So therein, that is God's rest. And then the third one, of course, is the, you know, right now but not yet version of eternal life. When someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, as David so eloquently talked about this morning, they do receive God's rest. Uh, so we get to experience it now, in part, and then more fully later on when we get to go to heaven. So that's that third part of rest. So Hebrews 4 is more of that. If you want to look into it, we won't today, but I encourage you to check it out. Half, Second half of verse 4. So he's talking about promises, then he says, Therefore, Turn and go to the tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Now, at this point, I know for myself, I was reading through this, I was like, what would it be like to be somebody who's just wandering in and didn't know who Joshua was? It was probably pretty rare that that would happen, but what Joshua seems to be a person that is giving, he's, he has some authority, he's giving some orders. And the life of Joshua is is incredible what this guy was able to do because of his faithfulness. 
he was faithful to the end. And Joshua, he was, a, he was a mighty warrior. He did what he needed to do to to take the land. But he was also a fantastic leader. This guy was able to rally troops because of his faithfulness. People could see this was a man of God that was doing what was the Lord's will, and people followed that. They followed that passion, uh, at least uh, when it as it pertained to him. But I think one of the coolest stories that he's involved in is this part where he's taking the land. This was the situation, really, that was the last straw for God when we were talking back uh, about why they ended up in the timeout chair. Remember that? Before the, the 40 years in the wilderness? This was the last, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's in Numbers 13. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to give you uh, just a couple of, of parts about it. So this is where Moses, or the Lord tells Moses, I want you to send spies into the land. Go check it out, and just so you're better equipped to know what you're doing, right? God works with them in this situation. He wants them to use their minds, use their uh they're cunning that he's given them. So Moses sends them all out and they go back and they're gone for 40 days. And they come back and they, they ask them to bring back or check out fruit. Uh, also fortifications, how many people there are, how strong they look, things like that, right? There's some tactical things involved. Um, and so they come back and they have this branch with some fruit on it. And then verse 25 in chapter 13 of Numbers At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. That's where they were camped. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. Not literally. Uh, This is fruit. Like, check out this fruit. Look at how awesome it is. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Right? They're strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And when they're saying very large, we're not thinking Toronto, right? We're thinking like Georgetown. These aren't, these aren't, you know, flourishing metropolises. Is it metropolises or would it be metropoli? Does anyone, metropolises? I don't know. One of those two. It's, uh, this is, this, what, it wouldn't be that, right? It would just, it would be something a little bit smaller. But nevertheless, for these guys, they're out, they're living in tents, they're in the bush. Haven't showered in how long, right? And they're, they're seeing any sort of civilization to them is awe-inspiring. And so some of them are like, we're not going in. This is, this is insane. Look at these people. Like, can you imagine what kind of weapons they have? Can you imagine what they're capable of? We can't deal with this. We can't, we can't touch this. And he said, besides, or they say, besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And, dun, 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 right? The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So we have all of these people, all of these groups there. How in the world are we, little old us, right? How are we supposed to take care of that? But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men had gone up to him and said, the other men who had gone with him, so remember there was 12, and 10 of them are dissenting at this point. Two of them are not. There's Caleb, right? And he's out of Judah, and there's Joshua. Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. These two guys out of 10 are saying it's good. The other 10 are not. So when it says the other, it doesn't mention Joshua, but Joshua wasn't descending. Dissenting, sorry. Descending. He's going up a hill or down. Uh, we are not able to go up against the people for, or sorry, uh, 
Then the men got up and said, we are not able to go up to the people for they are stronger than we are. So we brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had spied out, saying the land through which we are gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, right? Eats them for breakfast. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height, right? I don't know, I was in, when I was in high school, it was grade six, I was about five, five. And one time we had to go play basketball against a team across town. And we walk in there, and we were all around the same height. And there are these dudes on the other side of the court in uniforms. Go figure. And they were all like 6'2", 6'3", and we're like, what's up with the college guys? What's up with the the high school guys going on? They're like, no, 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 that's the other team. We got destroyed. It wasn't even it wasn't even a game, right? We got annihilated. But this is what they're thinking. Oh, they're tall, so they're going to get us. And there we saw the Nephilim. Remember the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim? And we seemed to ourselves like, what? Like grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. So they're looking at themselves like bugs, like they're insignificant, like they're nothing. And then later in verse 14, though, sorry, chapter 14, uh, Caleb, again, and Joshua this time, both stand up to them. So they've gone into this land that they didn't know about. They were it was obviously scary, even for people like, uh, you know, if we consider ourselves people of God, if you go into certain places, by nature, often we can get scared. There's nothing, having a, a fear or an impulse or emotion of fear, there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's, it, that isn't sinful. But living in it, that's the problem. So they could have gone into the situation that was obviously scary, but then when Joshua and Caleb came out, particularly Joshua, that's who we're talking about this morning, he came back and he's not afraid. He's not afraid. In verses uh, 9 particularly, he says, we need to obey the Lord. We need to trust the Lord. We need to not be scared. Verse 9 of, of chapter 14. We need to go for it. They are bread for us. He pulls back and they said, you know how the other 10 were saying they devour? He's like, no, 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 no. They won't devour us. They're, they're bread for us. We got this because God is on our side. Do not fear them. So this is Joshua's story. This is, this is how Joshua plays this out. And the cool thing is, is this can be your story too. This can be all of our story. Somebody that is willing to stand up and say, it may seem scary now, but the Lord is with us. Can you imagine being in a community or a world that would all have that same attitude? I think it'd be awesome. So, okay, moving on. Verse 5. Back in uh, Joshua chapter 2. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. And here it is. And to cling to him. Right? Cling to him. And serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, in this verse, there's a lot of verbs, right? We have observe and, and uh, walk and keep, serve, love. These are all things that he's telling us to do. But I think, uh, and these are, these are all good things. These are all things we need to be doing. But I think, in my mind at least, they're a little bit more straightforward. I, I know what that looks like. I can conceptualize loving God. I can conceptualize following him and serving him. But the clinging part for me, is is a little bit weird sometimes because, I mean, let's face it, God is, here's another word for us, he's incorporeal, right? Like, he, he doesn't have a body. 
How do you, how do you cling to something that you can't touch in the same way that you might want to cling to or say Caddy might want to cling to his mom as he's doing right now? How do you do that? Uh, not to mention, as I was saying before, around us, there's so many things to cling to. There's so many things that are good things. So how do I know how to discern what is good and, and what's not? If something's enticing me, well, I, I know some of you might even be saying, Chris, you keep saying cling. And you know what, man? I don't, I don't cling to anything, right? I, I'm not a clinger. I, I might, you know, hang out with. I might spend time with. I might chill with. But I'm not, I'm not gonna cling. I don't, I don't cling. The funny thing with God though is He understands that, I think. And He, He meets us where we're at. But at the same time, He's got this crazy way of knowing exactly what we need to do to succeed. And so when He says that we need to cling to Him, he knows exactly this is this is what we were created to do. This is what we were created for. This idea of clinging, it's remember, it's trusting, it's refusing to let go. There's a band that I like called Anne Berlin, and in one of the, their songs is called Dismantle Repair. The the lyric goes, It's not that I keep hanging on. It's not that I keep hanging on. I'm not white knuckling it. It's I'm never letting go. It's not that I keep hanging on, I'm never letting go. So this is an idea. Right? This is, this is, uh, making a commitment to clinging on to, to make a, a, an, an overt decision to attach myself to it, not just hang on for dear life and hope everything is gonna be okay. But I'm not gonna let go. They wanna be cemented to him. It's a union that should never be dissolved. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, there's a, a funny relationship between, this is Sergeant Horvath and this is He's a, like a translator. And at one point, they're just about to uh, experience a horrific battle. And uh, the captain says to, to Sergeant Horvath, he says, I need you to stay, or sorry, he says to Upham, I need you to stay as close as you can to Sergeant Horvath. And you've never seen anyone cling to another person like he did. He's weeping and he's frightened, he's shivering, and he is hanging on to Sergeant Horvath for all his life. His life. And Sergeant Horvath even says, I'll wear him like underwear, Captain. A wear him like underwear cap. And, and for those of you who think it's funny to say that, this is actually a biblical idea. If you look up, we won't go there, but Jeremiah 13, 11, talks, it talks about in the first half of the verse, God wore Israel like underwear. It's, it's true. You can look it up later. Jeremiah 13, 11. But, so this is biblical. But nevertheless, remember, we can still falter, right? It's just because we say we want to cling to something doesn't mean that we're always going to. I mean, look, this is just moments later, and he's already let go, but he's got him still. He's got him still. But it's still, it's, it's honest to remember that. This is why we need to cling to someone, though, who can handle the load. This is why we need to cling to someone who can handle the load. Charles Spurgeon, a uh, great preacher, wrote, I guess and writer as well, the child in danger of the fire just clings to the fireman and trusts him alone, puts trust to him alone. She raises no question about the strength of his limbs to carry her, or the zeal of his heart to rescue her. But she clings. The heat is terrible, the smoke is blinding, but she clings. And her deliverer quickly bears her to safety. In the same childlike confidence, cling to Jesus, who can and will bear you out of danger from the flames of sin. Jesus himself, he clung to the Father. Jesus clung to the Father. Why do you think it was any sacrifice at all for him 
to do what he did for us, to die in our place. He was momentarily forsaken on that cross, and that was terrible for him. That relationship that he had to the Father was temporarily broken. And ironically, he was denied the very thing that we so often take for granted. To him, it was the most important thing, and he willingly denied himself that so we could have access to it 24-7, 365. That's pretty awesome. So if it's a conscious commitment then, how do we, how, how does Oak Ridge, how do we get better at that? And I want to lay a challenge at your feet, brothers and sisters, this morning. Are we, are we, are we ready? And that's it. I want to talk to you about prayer. I know we've been talking a lot about this recently, and I think for us, this is, this is where it's, it's going to begin, and this is where it's going to end. We want to be a community that really, really prays. And so there's two things I'm going to ask, challenge you to do this week or to think about for this week. First, uh, I want to encourage you to join the prayer chain. On the back of your bulletin, there's an email address there. If you don't have a bulletin, track one down and grab it. And that's Jim and Kathy Rennie have their email address on there. And they faithfully update it all the time. And there's two reasons why this is good. One, you can pray for people in the community as their prayer requests come up. You know what's going on, right, For in certain people's lives, and you're able to lift them up in prayer. I mean, we should be praying for each other anyway, but this is a very specific way that we can do that. So I challenge you to get on that prayer list, on that prayer chain. And the second reason is that it's so easy when we live on an island in this, in this Western society, we're all alone, and we think, oh, I don't want to bother anybody with my, with my problems. But I want you to bother me with your problems. And, and there's, there's brothers and sisters all around you that want you to bother us with your problems, right? Because it's not a bother. It's part of what being in community is all about. And so you can call or, or email Jim and Kathy, and they would love to put your prayer requests up there too so that we can also pray for that. So that's the first one. Spurgeon, again, we're getting, we're getting Spurgeonized this morning. He writes, the more we pray... I just pounded that, and I didn't mean to. I'm, there we go. Get some more of that in there. Uh, the more we pray, the more we shall want to pray. The more we pray, the more we can pray. The more we pray, the more we shall pray. He who prays little will pray less, but he who prays much will pray more. And he who prays more will desire to pray more abundantly. For me, that quote is powerful because, uh, and this may sound weird coming from, from the pastor, but I sometimes I struggle with praying. It, maybe it's because of that whole incorporeal thing and, and not being able to, to see God. I have an easier time talking to someone I can see maybe, but I, it's, I struggle with that sometimes. And it's been, uh, since I came into the faith, this is something that I've wanted to work on. So I've gotten books. There's good books by Max Lucado and Tim Keller and Andrew Murray and, and a lot of these guys that, uh, Richard Foster in the Celebration Discipline, who help teach us to pray, these mystics, these awesome people that really want to help us get better at this privilege. Because sometimes prayer is hard, right? Sometimes prayer is hard, but I've committed to trying to get better at it. I think we all can do that. So the first one, join the prayer chain. Second one, I'm going to challenge you, show up early next week, 9.30. We have our prayer meeting, and I want to spill out of that prayer room. And I want to do it in here. And we need, obviously we need more people to do that. 
Otherwise, like six people in here looks pretty, pretty pathetic. So uh, I, I challenge you to come early, and we're going to pray together. It doesn't have to be every week, but I want it to be at least next week. I want to see more people with us so that as we lift up our community and as we talk about what we want to be doing, we want to be, we want to be talking about it together in community with God. We want to be doing it in prayer. So come next week at 930 and let's pray together as that community for us to be clingers that, and to try to visualize, to dream, if you will, what it would look like if this whole church community would commit to clinging to God. Think of a community like that. In our culture, we tend to think of clingy, I think, as a negative thing, right? The person is always needing me and, and is always coming after me, uh, wanting to be around me, needing things from me, and appears to be just, just dependent, right? We think of that, this, oh, that person is clingy, yuck, right? Or if, or if you're into it, that just means you're codependent, right? If you like the clingy person, you're codependent. And in our, you know, individualistic Western society, often we can put that on God, right? We put our own thinking onto him and say, well, that must be what God's like. He doesn't want me clinging to him and always bothering him and always whining to him, right? That I'm just going to leave him alone. But the cool thing about God is that he's not always like us. Sometimes he is. I mean, he, we're made in his image, right? So we, we often can do amazing, creative, wonderful things, that glorify him and show him that, yes, we, we are a worthy creation because we're following after him, right? That is true. But other times we're not. God, he wants to be in a relationship with someone on his own. And he's not codependent, right? God's not codependent. He's just so invested in humanity that he's willing to walk closely, closely with us in order to give us the best chance to succeed. He's willing to walk closely with us in order to give us the best chance to succeed. And this is like a good father. This is like a good father. Like as if we're his children. We're his children. Ever notice how much more grace we have than when we're there our own kids? Uh, you know, someone always told me if you ever want to, or if you ever question the, the depravity of the human soul, there's two places you got to go. The comment section on YouTube and or any sort of uh or facebook or watch a two-year-old because there's there's no doubt that we want to go and we want to get after it and not always the the most like holy ways right we do things that aren't always good but from god's perspective or sorry from my perspective uh most adults at least for me i i'm going to give my boy more of the benefit of the doubt i'm going to give him more grace and this is exactly how it is with god most adults though we'd write off without a thought if they acted like a two-year-old, wouldn't we? And this is funny because I always think of myself from an adult, like an adult in God's perspective, right? That me, him and I are peers, at least as it, as it pertains to uh, maturity standpoint, right? We're on the same page. I'm not a kid, so and God's not a kid, so we must be on the same plane as far as maturity goes. But from God's perspective, we're all two-year-olds, right? And this isn't negative. This isn't a bad thing. This isn't worm theology. This is just that we need God. Life is like a school for souls, and we're learning about what it takes to live in God's kingdom with him. And he's walking with us. He's leading us. He's teaching us. He's loving us, just like a good father would. And this is, this is grace. And this is why he wants us to cling to him, to come to him with all of our mess and say, I'm sorry. I messed up. I need you. Please help me. I want to have eternal life 
with you. I want to help other people discover what it's like to be in relationship with you, to know a good father. So when it comes to relationship with God, then being clingy is actually a good thing. So remember, ask yourself, who do you cling to? If you think it's with God, is it is it a fling? Or do you cling? Fling or cling? I know it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's probably, could be the most important question that we ever answer. Let's pray. Father, again, we are uh, on our knees before you and we're grateful that we get to come into contact with you, that you are with us. We think of Jesus' words after our, upon, when he was ascending uh, to be with you and he said that he'll always be with us till the end of the age and we're grateful for that, to always have that um, strength and that peace, that sense of purpose and to know that we can put ourselves, everything we are, into your hands, that we can give our lives to you and that you will use us for your glory. Uh, if only we would cling to you. Uh, we ask that you keep that with us this week as we think about uh, getting better at talking with you, that first step in becoming truly attached to you as best we can. Uh, and we, we want your help with that because we are, uh, we struggle. We have these things that happen in life and these distractions around us, these, these things that are awesome. They're really good. They're things that you created, but sometimes we take them too far. We are passionately immoderate. Uh, at times, and, and we need we need to be taking a step back. I know I knew. I totally do. Uh, so uh, as we finish here today, um, as we go from here, be with us and help us experience that, that sense of your grace. In your name, amen.